This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to Talking TV, I'm Jake Cantor. This week we put ourselves in the line of duty as the executive producer of BBC Two's hit drama joins us to discuss the long-awaited second series. Talking of BBC Two, we'll also look back on Janice Hadlow's legacy after broadcast revealed this week that the controller will be stepping down in March. Plus, we'll of course bring you some previews, including the gut-churning moment Michael Mosley swallows three tapeworms on BBC Four's Living With Parasites. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. I'm delighted to say that broadcast new editor Chris Curtis is with us in the studio. Enjoying life at the top, Chris? Uh, yeah, it's been great. <laughs> you recovered from last week's awards. Yeah, I was I, I was sort of a bit nervous at the awards, and then I got rid of the nerves by having a few drinks, so the next day I had a bit of a sore head, but uh, yeah, yeah, it worked out well. Like many people in the room, probably. Uh, also with us is uh, Stephen D. Wright, the creative director of WizKid Entertainment. How are you doing, Stephen? Very well. Top yeah. of the world. <laughs> As always. As good. always. Pleased to be, wa- be back with us. Of course, yes. The highlight of my week. <laughs> Shall we crack on with the first item then? Mm-hmm. Uh, we turn to the biggest story of the week, which of course was the revelation that BBC Two controller Janice Hadlow is stepping aside in March. After five years overseeing the channel that brought us the Great British Bake Off, Hadlow is uh, taking on a wide-ranging creative brief as BBC controller of special projects and seasons. BBC director of television Danny Cohen told Broadcast he is keen to move swiftly to find a replacement, with names including Ralph Lee, Kim Schillinglaw and Mark Lindsay already being touted as potential successors. Chris, it would be churlish, surely, to look back on Janice's record at BBC Two and say it was anything other than good. Yeah, I think she did a pretty amazing job. I think it took a bit of time to get going. There were some accusations early on that BBC Two lacked a bit of identity and it was kind of top gear and a slightly odd hodgepodge of, of, of factual. She was pulled up on that by Mark Thompson, wasn't she, she, famously? She was a little bit. I'm not sure that was a particularly pleasant conversation, but I think that over time, she sort of came up with this clever pleasure mantra, which it sounds like one of those trite buzz phrases that um, controllers or, or commissioners uh, latch onto. But she kind of made it work. She made sense of it. And so by the end, certainly with drama, with some of the big sort of formatted factual stuff, it really felt like you could recognise the voice of a, of a BBC Two show. Stephen, what do, you, what do you make of the health of BBC Two? BBC Two, great. It's a great channel. I love watching it. I would say it had a, a slightly middle-aged feel a few years ago, which it definitely was a bit too history, a bit too dry, a bit too whatever. But that has reversed, definitely. And it's a cooler channel. I mean... It was a brilliant night uh, last night, for example. There was a lot of good shows on. I mean, it is a good channel. I mean, mm. I think people will be sad to see her go. Uh, but what everyone wants to know is who's next. Yeah. Clearly, they've been thinking about this process with Janice for quite a while. feels like Danny's handled it quite well. He says that she wanted to leave, but he wanted to keep her within within the BBC. So it's, it's, it's all worked out by the sounds of it. We need to wait and see what happens with her new job. There's a hint with her new job that the starting point was let's keep Janice, and so let's find the job that enables us to do that rather than there being a job that there was a huge need to fill. But that's not to say it won't work out well. You know, she's really experienced as a channel controller. Everyone talks about her sort of formidable intellect, but I think also she's now, like Stephen was sort of saying, in the last, I don't know, 18 months probably, there's enough 
sort of fun and drama and energy and excitement on the channel to make it work. So I think if she can translate some of that into her new into her new role, then um, fantastic. And Stephen, you hinted at it, but who do you think should be taking over BBC Two? Well, I, I can't rule myself out. I'm waiting for the call, but I doubt that it'll be me. That but, is on the uh, line. Yeah, I'm hoping so. Uh, no, I mean, that was the big thing. When we heard the news, everyone was like, you know, there's a little bit of silent mourning for Janice. And then it was like, well, who's, who's it going to be? Who's how, be? how long was the silent mourning? Well, I don't know. Maybe a good 15 seconds, which is quite <laughs> long in media terms. But I mean, there was a, but the biggest problem, I think, is that there's no clear front runner or there doesn't seem to be I mean when they do announce the name you might go oh of course it was that person all along or you, you know it's so obvious it's that person but right now I think people are a little bit stumped as to who is going to be the next person and what will they be I mean what I obviously don't want is for it to be a factual person because I think BBC2 is a really strong factual channel very I mean just you know world beating really so it doesn't need another factual person probably what, what I would say obviously from an entertainment background is let's have someone who comes in with a bit more arts or a bit more culture or a bit more entertainment, comedy, mm. music, etc. Chris, some final thoughts on that one? Well, I think the idea, I mean, if you re- rewind a year, I think the thinking with Charlotte Moore was the, the natural successor to Janice. She was, yeah. Uh, for BBC Two. But of course, the various ruptions at, uh, at the BBC <laughs> have resulted in Danny getting moved up and Charlotte gets the job at BBC One. So there isn't the, the obvious standout candidate. There's a lot of strong people in that factual heartland that Stephen talks about. It would be interesting if they went a slightly different way, but um, there'll be a huge amount of scrutiny. It's a tough gig. You, you know, you're coming into a channel that's doing really well, but it, you know, it's, a, it's a fantastic channel to run, BBC Two. Always tough to come in when, when the station's doing well. Uh, let's move on, shall we? Uh, you can be forgiven for a touch of deja vu because ITV has announced it is launching another channel. Uh, this time it's a free-to-air proposition called ITVB, which is aimed squarely at young women and housewives with children. ITVB launches later this year and will mean a slight repurposing for ITV2, which will lose its female skewing slant and focus on scripted and entertainment content for 16 to 34-year-olds. Uh, Stephen, what, what do you make of this? As a young woman who only watches reality <laughs> TV, I'm uh, delighted at This the is a great move. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, it, I always think it's a bit weird when they say this is going to be aimed at young women because then they say what's going to be on it. And I'm like, well, I'll, I'll watch that. And, but, you know, I, I get the kind of the drift. The, the, you know, the, the used to be living, used to be the female-oriented channel. That became a little bit more unisex. Uh, TLC, for example. I mean, I, I see it as a kind of... Is ITV looking at how other channels are doing and thinking, hang on, we, we haven't got that demographic. And meanwhile, we've got all this content we can repackage and put out. My main thing is, will they be commissioning original stuff? That's what I want to hear, because I love the idea of a new channel. You know, I love the idea of new business. If it's just a sort of repeat channel, I'm a little bit like, mm. The sense is that they will be commissioning content, but whether that will be with money over and above ITV's existing commissioning budget hasn't been made clear or spelled out at all in any way. Mm. Is that a concern, do you think, Chris, at this stage, or do you think they're just keeping their cards close to their chest? Yeah, I don't think it's a concern. I think it's kind of fascinating that ITV's had such a settled channel portfolio for a decade, really, and then all of a sudden, in the last couple of weeks, we've had two new channels. The Encore channel, the pay TV channel, I can kind of see that strategically, on almost on a corporate level, you can kind of understand that. They're trying to diversify their revenue streams, trying not to be so reliant on the ad market, and they've got a big archive of fairly recent drama that they can play on that channel. Sky will give them a nice premium, decent carriage deal. The sums probably add up. This ITVB, I'm kind of... It's harder... You know, it's still a free-to-air channel. I think that's the, probably the issue, that a lot of those female-skewing channels, Sky Living, TLC, uh, Lifetime's Lifetime. launched now. Yeah. All pay. They're all pay. That's right, they're all pay. And so you, you, there is maybe a gap 
if you look at what Dave's done on Freeview, but the danger is you sort of chop off the legs of, of, of ITV2. Towie perhaps isn't the, the force that it once was in terms of uh, being a, a standout, kind of unique show, but it's still delivers pretty decent numbers for ITV2. They're going to lose yeah. that. Some of those voices, some of those concerns are raised in this week's issue of broadcast that there is a risk that the audience will be cannibalised. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure ITV will have considered this, though, and uh, weighed up the risks, you'd hope, wouldn't you? I mean, it, the big risk is what happens to ITV2. You don't want a weakened ITV2 and a sort of a kind of fledgling ITVB. You know, you want a strong ITV2. But I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm sure they could. If it, it, as long as there's money, they can mm. build. That. I mean, that's, that's yeah, really they've the got key. to back it. You know, the channels are channels, but if there's money, there's going to there'll be good content. People will rise to the challenge. You know, so ITV2 could become preeminent in scripted and comedies yeah. and da 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 da. It could be really classy. You know, I mean, ITV, you could say you could argue that Towie brought ITV2 down a bit. Mm. What if, do you What do you make of the name ITVB? I quite like it. Do you? Yeah, I'm not sure about it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It sounds like there should be an ITVA somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of think if if what they're hinting at is that the future for ITV2 is plebs and more shows like plebs, then fantastic. I, I mean, thought I, you meant the audience. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, God, that's quite, you know. Whoa. I love ITV2. Not this show. I'm not a pleb. <laughs> very, very open comedy, yes, yeah, talking course. TV podcast. Um, <laughs> but I think that if there's the money and they've got those, I mean, Angela Jane's back, you know, her scripted... Um, Background's really strong. If they're, if they're going to give her the money to turn ITV2 into a, a really interesting, young, skewing, mm. scripted channel, that could be really powerful. Absolutely. But it is a slightly dangerous. When you've got something as strong as ITV2, to mess around with it is not without risk. OK, we'll move on to our, our final piece, which is uh, our commission of the fortnight. Uh, channel 5 ruffled a few feathers at Horse Ferry Road last week when it aired the big benefits row, stealing the thunder of Channel 4's planned live debate on its Benefit Street series. Channel 5 is now going one step further by developing its very own welfare documentary series, which is working titled Living on the Social and Produced In-House. Uh, Chris, this is opportunism at its best, is it not? This is Ben Frow <laughs> doing what he what he always plans to do. Fantastic titles, really obvious. You know what you're going to get. Living on the social is cracking, I think. Yeah, I mean, really smart. There's something around what Channel 5 is doing at the moment in terms of those themes and the Desmond newspapers. You know, it's not unusual to see... Um, these kind of stories in the Express, and you know, they obviously think that kind of that hit, hits a chord. They've they've looked at what Channel Four was doing. To be honest, they looked at the numbers Channel Four was getting for Benefit Street, and they thought, let's get a bit of that. And they seem to have done it pr- pretty smartly and effectively and quickly. Do you applaud this kind of commissioning, Stephen? Absolutely. I mean, it's clever, but it's dead obvious. It's not genius. What's really uh, worthy of applause is they've done it quickly. They've literally gone, we'll stick that straight in. I mean, what they've done is shown Channel Four up to look a little bit slow. Channel 4 used to be like this. Channel 4 used to always be like, we'll, we'll nip and, and bite the heels of BBC and ITV. Channel 5 are now doing the same thing to Channel 4. I mean, that's the thing. Channel 5 are being a bit cheeky and rude, which is always the kind of classic Channel 4 USP. Mm. You know, you don't think, oh, well, they're geniuses for doing that. Everyone's talking about Benefit Street. Everyone's watching it. Get something on. You, you know, it's, it's like the blue touch paper and retire. That's yeah. all you do. Woof. Channel 4 should have done it. You know, they should have done it maybe after the first week of Benefit Street or the second week and owned it. The, the live debate, do you mean? The yeah. live debate, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, they shouldn't have waited, you know what I mean? So it's that thing of when everyone's talking about it, don't wait. You, somebody will scoop you. Right now, you know, the media is 24 hours a day. You don't wait. Somebody will do it the next day or they'll do it online or they'll do it, you know. That's the thing about um, the world now. It's so fast. So Channel 4 look a little bit like they were caught by surprise. Channel 5, wow, well done. Mm. Do you not think that Channel 5 should be ploughing its own furrow to a certain extent? Well, uh, all channels should be, but I mean, you know, Channel 4 doesn't own the benefits. Do you know what I mean? It's a massive subject. 
Channel 4 have had weeks and weeks of kind of plaudits and, and brickbacks. So, you know, anyone could have done the benefits for this. Uh, mm. You know, it's like saying who owns Floods Newsnight, you know, or the <laughs> one show. It's, do you see what I mean? If it's a big story, everyone can have a bit. And we also learned this week that Love Productions is on the hunt for another community to welcome in the cameras for a second series of Benefit Street. That, that was an inevitability, wasn't it, Chris? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the Channel 5 stuff has taken the gloss a little bit off the, the, the success that Channel 4 saw, but only a little bit. You know, it finished, didn't it? With, yeah. Uh, well, it's a bit of the biggest series since Big Fat Gypsy Weddings in 2011. And you can't argue with those numbers, can you? Massive numbers. And you know what? It doesn't hurt Channel 4, I don't think, to be at the heart of a controversy. You know, that, it was quite amusing that they managed to offend both the left-wing press and the right-wing press with the same show. It wasn't to everyone's taste. You know, it was popular. Will love find it hard to find another street? You know, are there issues of how the contributors were represented on the show? Potentially, but... I can't believe they won't manage to find another another street, another area, and make another probably really successful show. Well, we'll watch this space. Uh, thank you, chaps. Uh, that's your news for this episode. Uh, my thanks again to Chris and Stephen. Up next, we're heading back over to BBC Two, which has this week launched the second series of Jed Mercurio's gritty crime thriller, Line of Duty. It's been a near two-year wait for the World Productions show to return, and after a first series, which was full of shocks until the last, the anti-corruption police squad has a new case to get stuck into. This time, Keely Hawes' DI Lindsay Denton is accused of conspiracy to murder after three officers in a police convoy are killed during an ambush. Before we welcome executive producer and World Productions creative director Simon Heath, here's Denton being questioned in A&E by her superior officer. How are you, Lindsay? Up to answering a couple of questions. I'm just trying to get my head around what happened out there, sir. Two more breaths, please. But no one seems to know what you were up to. I'm sure I do either. Wallace and Butler are dead. The other two... Let's have the next shot ready. Still trying to save. Who are they? I'm not clear yet on whether that's something I should be divulging, sir. It'd help to know. Hello, Simon. Uh, thank you for joining us today. No problem, Jake. For the uninitiated, can you talk us through the original concept behind Line of Duty and how the second series moves it on? The show was conceived as, as a series that would look at police investigating police. It's been done before. Our, our company made a show called Between the Lines in the early 90s, which was about another fictional anti-corruption unit. But this time, the, the, the twist that Jed wanted to bring to that particular subgenre, if you like, was that each anti-corruption case would span an entire series. At that point, we talked about shows like Damages, where each season feels quite unique. And within that format, the guest character is the officer under investigation. And in some ways, they are the dominant figure of the season. So we took, we took that model and applied it to series one with Lenny James as, as DCI Gates under investigation. And the team we built, which was essentially Adrian Dunbar as the superintendents and then Martin Comston and Vicky McClure as the investigators working for him would be the returning element to come back in subsequent series. So the question was, having had some success with with the first series... Some and, success. And it, was, it was the biggest new drama on BBC Two in seven years. I no, think. We, were, we were delighted. <laughs> we were delighted. And um, 
it was a question then of how we were going to get people to understand that the format had always been designed to be returning. I think there was a suspicion in some quarters that it was only ever designed as a serial, which wasn't true. We always had Jed always conceived Jed it always as a had his, Yeah, we always discussed it as being a, a long running series, something that could come back for five series with each season having a different, you know, hopefully quite a different kind of investigation as well as uh, a different character under the spotlight. And it's, uh, I mean, it's a very different Keely Hawes we see, isn't it? She, absolutely. She's usually quite glamorous in this. She is, she's far from glamorous. Absolutely. And and she she absolutely embraced that idea of of playing against type. And I think in terms of an audience, and, and there's a lot of drama on air at the moment, and there's a lot of actors getting a lot of airtime. I think it's up to producers to look at the acting pool and say, you know, if, if it isn't always possible to bring new or unknown talent onto the screen, then another way you can surprise the audience is by taking a familiar name but placing them in a role that you don't expect them to take. And and that was Jed's thought with Keely, and I, I thought it was a very strong one. But we could never imagine that she'd have pulled it off so brilliantly. Yeah. You said that this type of police drama has been done before, mm-hmm. but the first series felt very fresh. Yeah. Uh, how did Jed go about finding a point of difference? For starters... There haven't been that many anti-corruption so police dramas. It's a relatively, yeah, it's relatively, yeah. and you know, between the lines is over twenty years ago. A, a lot has happened to the police force in that time, and I think in the in the early days of researching the show, one of the things that immediately struck us was that there were new forms of corruption. So it, when we enter series one with the Gates character, he's indulging in the manipulation of figures, which is a constant newsworthy story at the moment where police are are, are basically signing off crimes that haven't been solved or are down processing other crimes in order that the figures kind of sit with the targets they're given by management. So in a sense the system creates this kind of corruption where police officers are just doing the best they can to meet the expectations of, uh, of the bureaucracy. And, and it felt to us that that kind of, if you like, fiddling of the figures was a good starting point for the corruption of the show and would be something people hadn't seen before because, in a sense, it was a creation, really, of the mid to late 90s and onwards, starting with the new Labour government and carrying on. And it feels salient given, you know, all the accusations uh, about police leaking information to the press at the moment and corruption going on as well. I mean, was that something Jed was keen to tap into? Yeah, funny enough, that, that became more of a, a, a source of conversation around Series 2. One of the other key areas of police corruption is information leakage, whether it's paid for or not. So we wanted that to be at the heart of this ambush. Yeah, that, that there was a theory that the, the, the information that had allowed the criminals to ambush the police convoy had come from a police source. Though obviously, and you'll see as the series pans out, there are other forms of information leakage featuring in the series. And, and we broaden that relationship between the upper echelons of the police and the press who are reporting on the case. Which it's is certainly hinted really at in, yeah. in the first episode. And that that ambush you talk about, that's one of the first scenes in, in the first episode of the second series. And it's it grabs you immediately. Um, Keely, oh, I mean, we, we were talking about Keely earlier. She described, <laughs> she's described it as one of the most harrowing jobs she's ever done, uh, <laughs> given the amount of interrogation she goes through during the series. Is, that, is it going to be a harrowing watch? <laughs> um, I think hopefully a thrilling watch. Um, I, I think it's a show that everyone describes as feeling tense. And I think even in 
in scenes where the characters seem to be just hanging out in a bar, there's a kind of underlying tension there that comes either from their working lives or the way that their personal lives are impacting on their working lives. Jed is brilliant at retaining that kind of thriller pulse beating right the way through episodes, even when it doesn't appear that a huge amount is happening, when it's it's four people in a room in an interview interrogation scene. That The first episode has an 11-minute interrogation scene and there's a later scene in episode five which runs to nearly 15 minutes Gosh. which is which is epic and probably my favorite scene of both series you said it's been conceived as a returner is there the potential to do more once this is done absolutely yeah we've already started talking about potential fertile story areas for series three and what that might be and what that character or characters might be but there's plenty of mileage in police corruption. Yeah, and Jed's keen to, to go again. Absolutely, yeah. Not too yeah. busy. No, not too busy. <laughs> Once he's finished on, on Critical, he'd be ready to go. Well, I've got you just more generally about crime drama. I mean, clearly last year we had a breakthrough success in Broadchurch. Yes. Has that made you think differently about the way you develop police procedurals? What I felt both with the success of the first series of Line of Duty and Broadchurch is that, first of all, they're both incredibly authored by Jed and by Chris Chibnall. That gives them a distinctiveness, which I think wins out over the classic American network police procedure, which, whilst incredibly competent, are often very formulaic. I think the second thing I'd say about both those shows is they work because they are essentially one story told over a number of weeks. And I think the audience rather likes that and I think what's becoming difficult and in terms of the way we're developing shows the hardest nut to crack is returning to that classic story of the week formula because it starts to feel like a formula and an audience who's invested in Broadchurch or Line of Duty or The Killing expects a kind of very multi-layered nuanced story to try and wrap one of those up in an hour of drama can, if, if you're not careful, feel a little trite. And uh, we talked about Janice Hadlow leaving BBC Two earlier the, uh, on the show. I mean, she's left quite a formidable drama legacy at the channel. How would you how would you sum it up? How would you describe it? Well, I think a huge testament has to go to Ben Stevenson, who, in conjunction with Janice, fought very hard to get money back onto BBC Two for drama. I remember a time, you know, certainly as a company, we we would regularly have a series every year or every couple of years on BBC Two, whether it was This Life, The Cops, Party Animals, and then the money disappeared. It went, you know, there were difficult times in terms of the licence fee, money went to BBC One, money went to BBC Three. And I think what Ben cleverly saw in his early days in the controller job was that there was a big gap not just at the BBC, but perhaps generally for a kind of drama that wasn't being made in the UK and that BBC Two was the the right platform for that. And I think what he did with Janice was to fight incredibly hard to get that money and then, I think, back some very, very good writers to to do their thing and not be prescriptive and, and to see what came along. And whether anyone thought it would be The Fall or Peaky Blinders or Line of Duty at the outset of that process, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't say. But it, it seems to me that it's it's been an incredibly fertile period. So a good home for World Productions shows. Yes, hopefully for the future. <laughs> hopefully well. for the future. Thanks for coming in today. We wish you all the best with the rest of the series. Uh, Line of Duty continues on BBC Two next Wednesday at 9pm.
Finally, this episode, we're back on the previews trail, and I'm pleased to say that Chris Curtis and Stephen D. Wright have joined me again in the studio. First up, after putting his body through new age diets on Horizons Eat Fast and Live Longer, Michael Mosley goes one step further in the name of science for BBC Four's Infested Living with Parasites. Here's the good doctor feeding his new friend a tapeworm lodged in his intestines. In fact, that uh, does remind me of the type of tapeworm that you might have. It's the proportions are fairly accurate, actually. Yeah. That's going to be about the width of the worm um, after about 10 weeks. Yeah. And certainly, if it's left longer than that, going into months, it will get about twice the width. So the worm likes carbohydrate? Well, I think it would, yes. Um, certainly, uh, that's good for a growing tapeworm, Michael. Um, <laughs> if you have a bowl of that a day, yes, um, it'll grow good to good proportions. <laughs> That was uh, that was Michael Mosley slurping down some tagliatelle. Um, I'm sorry if you're eating your lunch, uh, Stephen. What did you make of this one? I really enjoyed it. I, um, you know, as a, as a TV producer, I'm used to being accused of being a parasite and invoking a disgust <laughs> reflex in other human beings. So um, no, I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was a it was a cool way of getting into a sort of a sort of niche area of science that when you actually started to get into it was really interesting. I mean, I could have done with a little bit more stuff about the tapeworm. You know, did it help you lose weight, for example? That kind of classic thing about people did it in the 20s. They took tapeworms, blah, blah. But it was sort of surface level, but cool, you know. And I wanted to know a bit more at the end. That's the mm. thing. And so, But him, I think Michael Mosley is the kind of, you know, the Michael Palin of sort of sexy science. He's, he's good talent. He's very good talent. You kind of believe him. You know, I mean, at first it, 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 you know, it was a little bit of hype at the top, but actually it was a it was a cool way of getting into what would have been a kind of bizarre subject to have just done in a straight way, I suppose. You know, Chris, you were, were you less convinced or did you enjoy it? I thought it was a fantastic idea. I kind of like the idea of taking the immersive doc that they've done quite a lot on BBC Three and giving it a BBC Four twist. Mm. And the idea when I when I sort of when you said to me, "Hey, Chris, have a look at this program we're going to talk about on the podcast," and the synopsis was amiable scientific guy gives himself a tapeworm and then goes around sticking leeches on his skin or giving himself head lice was you know that's quite startling unusual innovative you know it's quite poppy for bbc4 it was it was i liked it it was up and down for me i loved the bit where they talked and showed me a bit about malaria and how sort of malaria spread and that and that felt quite you know emotive and um when it linked to you know, children dying in Africa or whatever it might be. There were times rats were scurrying around in cages uh, that I kind of, there was a bit of a so what factor. That fact- doesn't do it for you. There was a bit of a so what factor for me. It, it sort of lost a bit of momentum, I thought. But it was a it was a brilliant idea that, you, you know, you could see cutting through and it was well executed. There was a lot of walking about Oxford Circus Chief Station. Yeah. There was, uh, you it was, know, it was lazy, lazily is, shot around New Broadcasting it, House. I, I mean, and, it, was, it must have been on a shoestring. Shoe it all shot in a day, it looked like. But, um, I mean, there was a touch of that. You know, there was a little bit too much of him just walking and talking. When that's what I mean about I could have done with a bit more. Mm. It, it, was, it, was, it was surface. It left me sort of asking more questions, really. Yeah. What about so-and-so? What about this? That whole uh, thing at the end, you know, do parasites causes to have a raised immune system and therefore this is why we've all got allergies but fantastically interesting but felt like it was a bit buried at the at the end i felt yeah, like that could have been up at the top it. it could have been at the top mm-hmm. and then that would have made everything much more resonant you know mm-hmm. what i mean but it was nice to see something that is different oh yeah know? definitely that was, i think we, it sounds like maybe we've been a bit down i think Stephen and i probably both quite enjoyed it really, really. Enjoyed it. i mean it was, say, it was a very cool show yeah it's you know and you get it immediately when you hear scientists infects himself you think 
Yeah, yeah. I, I understand that. I, I quite like you know, that giant um, leech that oh, bit him. You know, that, <laughs> it was queasy. Yeah. Disgusting. It was, it was queasy. And what did you make of Val, the woman who was telling us that parasites have given humans manners? <laughs> <laughs> there was quite a few uh, w- weird, strange people in that show. The people who work in the professional parasite industry are odd. <laughs> and on that, on that note, we'll, we'll leave it there. Infested Living with Parasites was produced in-house at the BBC and forms part of BBC Four's Natural History season. It airs on Wednesday the 19th of February at 9pm. Our final preview is ITV's Edge of Heaven, a six-part comedy drama set in an 80s-themed bed and breakfast in Margate. Produced by Sherlock's Hartswood Films, it stars in between his actor Blake Harrison as Alfie, a chipper chap whose life is turned upside down after he is jilted at the altar by his fiancée. Here's Alfie's sister Anne-Marie taking a breakfast order on the day of the ill-fated wedding. Let me see... I'll have the muesli selection, please. I can do, soldier, on a skeleton service. Family wedding and all that, so the uh, usual service is interrupted. Family wedding? <laughs> Lovely. Uh, well, in that case, I'll just have a yoghurt and some fruit. Skeleton service. Perhaps a bit of toast? So exactly what is available? One black pudding breakfast tan. On it. Chris, you love this, didn't you? Uh, that's a little strong, Jake. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of struggled a bit with, with who it was aimed at and why it had been created. I had no idea why it was an 80s-themed B&B. There was no... Expedi- it, wasn't, it wasn't entirely clear, no, was it? wasn't it? clear. I just thought it was, it was really... I, get, I like the idea that ITV wants to order family sitcoms. You know, I, I like the idea that they're not trying to, to reinvent the wheel, that they want something that's um, straightforward and accessible... There didn't seem to be many jokes in it, or if there were, I wasn't they were, If they were, they were very telegraphed, I they, thought. Yeah, I mean, it was... Listen, I don't want to be too down on it. It was straightforward. You kind of knew what you were knew what you were getting from the outset, but I didn't really care about the characters particularly. The script sort of... It was quite slow. I don't know. I, it wasn't... It I, I didn't leave me wanting more. Stephen, I've been trying to second-guess what you might think all week. I, I quite liked it. I didn't. Um, I did laugh occasionally, you know, but it was. It, it did feel very much like it was a collection of oddball characters mm. that wouldn't necessarily have all lived together in a normal world. Certainly, you don't care about him being jilted, which there was no real kind of drama there. It didn't. That didn't feel realistic, you know. But it's the first episode mm. of a sitcom, and they always have that thing of you've got to kind of hold your feelings back until. But it it did feel a bit like, oh, here we go, a nice, warm, everyone's a bit mad. I mean, the 80s thing, yeah, what did that mean? That was like an extra extra bit of eccentricity. You know, the old mother felt like I'd seen that before. The two gays, you know, it's all, you know, I mean, they're not bad, Mm. but it was a bit like, oh, here we go, a collection of oddballs. They're all going to be in a kind of whimsical thing where every week something happens. You know, the girl who obviously fancies Blake isn't necessarily going to get together with him and we're going to have to go through a whole series before they do and da-da-da. But it may develop, it may, you know, hit its stride. Um, You know, I wasn't mad for it. It feels like the 80s uh, B&B might be a source of jokes right the way through the series and just something in the background. There was one reference to it in the opening episode, you know, literally one reference, Mm. and it was like, is that it? And... You know, it was a weird, a strange setup. You know, the the marriage of the mother didn't feel real. The no. it, it, there was a lot of things where you just think this is all being pushed together to do a sort of to make it funny, rather than it's really based in reality. You know, the great comedy should always be based in reality. It felt a little bit unreal. Yeah. yeah.
And Blake Harrison's quite likable though, and Adrian Scarborough, who is part of oh, yeah. the gay couple, he's he's, yeah. he's always good. Oh, no, he he was you know he's a, a very strong character. Him and his boyfriend were were easily the strongest characters, which is odd because they were there as kind of comic relief, whereas yeah. the other real characters didn't resonate as much as the the two gays. You it, know, it made me yearn a bit for Gavin and Stacey. It kind of felt like they were aiming Ish, for that, yeah. but the issue, the problem, the reason it didn't quite manage that, because in Gavin and Stacey, you've got a handful of oddballs and a handful of sort of straight characters. These were all and oddballs. and that and that yeah, yeah exactly they were kind of all all oddballs and you mm. didn't at the heart of Gavin and Stacey there's that warmth around that relationship mm. that, that, that the two lead characters have, mm. um, and then this kind of crazy world goes on around them and this just didn't quite set up the the format in that way. How does it compare to something like Benadorm, Stephen? Well, that's, I was, that's the thing I was while I was watching I was thinking Benadorm I love Benadorm I get a lot of stick for loving Benadorm because it is relentlessly downmarket and trashy, but I love it and it's ultra. It's, I mean, there's, there's no sort of realism in that. There's mm. a, you know, it's it's completely sort of bizarre, but that works somehow. Whereas this this could become better, but it felt a, a lot looser and a lot. It didn't feel real. Whereas Benadorm actually feels a bit more real, which is an odd thing to say. Mm. Yeah, I think ITV should be applauded because it's written by a reasonably new writer, a guy mm-hmm. called Robert Evans, who created CBBC series Sadie J and has penned episodes of uh, Stella. So you know, oh, no, this, there's, that, there's that's some, a good thing, there right? Some, there was definitely yeah. good bits in it. I mean, I think. The big problem with the opening episode is we have to get the jilting out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> and it did feel a bit like we've got to wait till the first episode finishes and then the characters can start. Might so settle down. It, that's the thing. So, I mean, we, we, we might sound too picky, which we obviously do. But, and I do it's feel a bit job. guilty. Well, not really. But I mean, you know, I mean, if I was sitting at home thinking I've written a sitcom and these two go, I can't really say what we are. Parasites. <laughs> oh, parasites. Yeah, yeah, parasites, sucking the blood out of the comedy by, by overanalyzing <laughs> it, when actually you've got to get all this drama set up out of the way, the sit, you know what I mean, mm. to get to the com. Yeah. And it felt a bit like that, like episode two, I'm definitely going to watch. You know, and see see if it develops because you can see the you can see the kind of the the, the seeds of, of plot, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's all you there. Know. On that positive note, uh, we'll leave it there. Edge of Heaven will debut on ITV on the twenty first of February at nine pm, and that marks the end of another Talking TV podcast. My thanks to our guests Chris Curtis, Stephen D. Wright, and Line of Duty producer Simon Heath. Thanks also to you for listening. You can join in the debate at broadcastnow.co.uk or you can tweet us on at broadcastnow. My name's Jake Cantor and the producer was the brilliant Matt Hill. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios.